The terror attacks launched by Hamas just over a week ago were shocking, horrific, barbarous. Words can't even really begin to describe what we all saw thanks to Hamas themselves posting photos and videos of their atrocities pretty much in real time. It was the darkest side of humanity on full display. Since then, a lot of commentary on what Hamas did, how Israel responded, and what comes next. Today, we take a step back and get the 30,000 feet view with Daniel Pipes, author, commentator, and president of the Middle East Forum. Hello, and welcome to the Full Comment Podcast. I'm Brian Lilly, your host. And in the conversation you're about to hear, we talk about what has happened over the last week or so, the history behind this seemingly never-ending struggle, why Daniel Pipes thinks now is the time to rid Gaza of the stranglehold that Hamas has placed on it, and what, if anything, America can do about bringing peace to the Middle East, as almost every president has tried to do for the last 50 years, other than Joe Biden. Daniel Pipes, thanks for the time. Uh, thank you for inviting me. The terror attacks that Hamas launched uh, just over a week ago now definitely caught the Israeli government by surprise. They caught the whole world by surprise, it seems. Now, this is a an issue you've studied, a group you've studied for a long time. How shocked were you by what you saw in terms of the the scale, the scope, the breadth of the attacks, and and of course, the utter barbarism of it? I was shocked along with everyone else. I'd studied Hamas. I knew its ideology. I knew its goals. I knew its methods. But I never imagined anything quite so audacious, barbarous, and successful. I thought the Israeli military knew what it was doing that it had defenses in place to protect against this sort of thing. Indeed, it appears that Hamas itself and its backers in Iran were shocked. Nobody expected something of this magnitude, the success from Hamas's point of view. Well, from, yes, from their point of view, it, it, it was successful. From an Israeli point of view, from a humanity point of view, it was utter devastating, utterly devastating. And the the images coming out, uh, is part of what shocked me, and maybe this is a tactic I haven't seen before, or maybe because Hamas has never done anything on this scale before. You know, I'm used to seeing them celebrate um, uh, killing of Israeli soldiers or, or or such, but we knew what was happening and how awful this attack was because Hamas was posting photos and videos almost in real time right. of what was happening and I, I think it it shocked the world and and also had people sit up and say this this goes well beyond anything we would expect did is that a new tactic for them promoting their own barbarism because there was there was no way you could say well these claims aren't true or that you could say well this is israeli propaganda this was hamas telling the world this is what we've done this is who we are uh, no, that's not something new. It's not something new for Hamas. I believe the first Islamist group to use this kind of um, video, self-videoing was Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, some 20, 30 years ago. Uh, ISIS did a lot of it. It's common. This is a jihadi tactic to intimidate your enemy, to show your power, to uh, do this on behalf of Islam. Uh, the, the good news is that there are large numbers of Muslims who are repulsed by this, and uh, it's created a response, both positive towards the barbarism, but also negative. 
I think I am of the inclination. I've been arguing for a decade now that Islamism, the idea of bringing medieval Islamic laws and imposing them on Muslims today and non-Muslims too, is in decline for the past uh, 10 years. And I think events like this, while superficially they look to strengthen the Islamist cause, I think in the long term harm it significantly. Many Muslims are repulsed by it. You know, as I've, I've been watching over the last week and, and hearing the calls, including calls for Muslims around the world to take up their own jihad, it struck me that we we haven't seen that the way we did a decade ago, the way we did, well, less than a decade ago, but, you know, when ISIS was on the rampage. Um, and after ISIS was defeated, that seemed to go back to the fringes. And this is pulling it back into the forefront. But you don't think that there's strong support for that. Why would you say that? I think several trends have reduced the appeal of Islamism. One is this, the barbarism against Israelis, against fellow Muslims, against all, you name it, everyone. Anyone who's not a fellow Islamist, and indeed a fellow Islamist of the same disposition. In Afghanistan, Taliban and Al-Qaeda are at each other's throats. So one is the sheer viciousness. Another is the experience that many Muslims have had living under Islamist rule, whether it be in Iran or Gaza or elsewhere. Uh, they don't like it. They hate it. And indeed, they have moved away from Islam. Basically, they've said, if what this authority has promoted as Islam, I don't want any part of it. And you see significant numbers of Muslims pull away. Even in Turkey, which doesn't have a government nearly so radical and violent as the Iranian or the Gaza one, uh, you see a great disaffection from, from um, Islamism, from the kind of Islam that the government is purveying. So when you listen to Hamas, they make this a very religious thing. They, they believe that they are doing what their faith tells them. Yes. And you can see the interviews with people in Gaza. You can see what the kids that go to the UNRWA schools, the United Nations Work and Relief Agency schools, where hardcore Islamist beliefs are taught, they will repeat that this is a, a holy war against Israel, the holy war against the infidels. Uh, sure. So, you know, is there is there polling? Is there um, data points that that you can point to that that show that this is uh, not something that uh, most Muslims, or at least in this part, most Muslims in in Gaza or the West Bank, are going to support because. Hamas has been in power for a long time. Hamas has been in power since 2007, so 16 years. And yes, there is polling. And what's particularly interesting is that historically, that is say until 2007, Gaza, the population of Gaza, was more radical, more anti-Zionist than the West Bank. And since then, while the West Bank hasn't exactly been a hotbed of liberal thinking and progressive ideas, it has been a fairly normal place compared to Gaza. Gaza has gone through, the population of Gaza, I would argue to you, has gone through an experience the past 16 years which is unprecedented in human history. And what I mean by that 
is that its ruling authority, called the government, has used the population as cannon fodder, but not the usual kind of cannon fodder. Not to win, not like, say, what um, uh, Prigozhin did in, in Ukraine, which is to win a battle. This has been cannon fodder for public relations purposes. The, Hamas has, has sent off rockets or whatever they might do, kites with incendiary devices and tunnels and so forth, in order to provoke the Israelis to smash Gaza, to bring in the aircraft, to destroy buildings, to um, break the electricity and water grids and the like. And then Hamas says, look, look at the victims we are. And it works. They have found Islamist support, Muslim sympathy, and far left sympathy as well. And so the people of Gaza have been used, exploited, for public relations purposes. Their lives have been disrupted. Death, destruction, poverty, oppression have been their lot. And polling shows that Gazans are, many Gazans, are weary of this and want out. Don't want to be used again and again for PR purposes to make the case for Hamas. And I think that's a very positive development. They want out. And I think what that means, just give me one more minute, mm -hmm. is that, that if Israel does take out Hamas, and implicitly that means conquer, reconquer Gaza, I think the Israelis have a chance to find Gazans who are willing to work with them. Not people pro-Israel, not people who are Democrats, but people who are sick of this unique, uh, miserable experience of the past 16 years. And so I'm optimistic that out of this tragedy can come something good if it's done correctly. Well, I want to ask you about Israel going in to rid Gaza of Hamas in a moment, but you mentioned about the way things have changed. Um, my understanding is that prior to Hamas having been in power for a long time, the quality of life, the standard of living in Gaza was actually fairly high. Yep. And now it, you know, it's described by many as an open air prison. That's the right. uh, the inflammatory terms that that are used to try and say that uh, uh, you know Israel, the apartheid state, the so called apartheid state, is oppressing them. But it, you know, it, it's the oppression of. Hamas that has really deteriorated the quality of life, I would argue. How has it changed in the last 16, 17 years? Well, to give a bit of background, um, Gaza was part of the Palestine mandate under the British. Uh, when the Arab states attacked the nascent state of Israel in 1948-49, the Egyptians took Gaza, and it was under Egyptian control from 1948 until the Israelis took it in 1967. At that time, in 1967, it was neglected. The Egyptians had no interest in it. It was recently described as an open-air prison. People couldn't leave. There were very few opportunities. The Israelis brought with them an uh, economic boom. In the 1970s, uh, Gaza and the West Bank as well were economic miracles. There was the most, these were the territories that had the highest uh, rate of growth in the world ahead of Taiwan and South Korea, Singapore, and even ahead of Israel itself. 
washing machines, electricity, water, schools, a university, all these came to be. This continued for 20 years, from 67 until 87. In 87, Hamas came into existence, a sub-project of the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt, Islamist, seeking jihad. And uh, Hamas um, made life miserable for the Israelis, the Israelis living there in uh, farms and the Israelis who were uh, patrolling. Until in 2005, the Israelis said, okay, you win, we leave. And two years later, Hamas took over. And uh, was, here we are. Um, and then it started attacking in 2008. Uh, and it is n has no interest whatsoever in the welfare of its of its subject population. Look, it undertook this massive massacre of Israelis without making any preparation for the consequences. There is nothing in place. There's no supplies. There's no bomb shelters or stockpiles. Nothing. Food nothing. No. The point is to have the population be uh, victimized. That's what wins sympathy around the world. That's the perverse point. This is not a battle to win on Hamas's part. This is a battle to get sympathy. And, and indeed, it's working. They may have murdered, well, how many is it, 1,200 now? Israelis in cold blood. But <laughs> there are significant precincts, for example, universities, uh, uh, that are sympathetic to Hamas and saying, good, go on, well done. I saw the video that Hamas themselves put out. Um, you know, they, they were sent uh, using aid dollars uh, pipes for a water system. They cut them up and made them into rockets. Yep. Called dual use. Yeah, they're experts at that. So have they been siphoning off aid from, uh, you know, countries like Canada, the United States that send over what we believe is humanitarian aid or money or supplies? Have they been siphoning that off for years to build their terror network even bigger? I think after explaining what I have so far, you won't be surprised. I'll say yes. Yeah, they're interested in making war on Israel. Damn the consequences. Let the population of Gaza be its public relations ticket. This is the way to find support. It's, it's perverse. Uh, and as I say, I don't think there's ever been, however, how many, however how many horrible regimes have been, I don't think anyone has ever used the population in this way. They use their population to build a military power, not to be victimized. So you, you say you're hopeful that Israel can go in and rid Gaza of Hamas, but don't they risk doing the opposite in terms of the views of the population, just hardening those views or further uh, radicalizing people? If, if it is as brutal as Benjamin Netanyahu and others have described, if if they have to go in and do, you know, flatten buildings and and go door to door taking out people, will that not bring just a, a new generation of supporters for this radical view? What you're pointing to is a dilemma that Israel faces. You, you mentioned about flattening buildings and going to door to door, but those are actually very different techniques. Flattening buildings means you don't put your own soldiers, your Israeli soldiers, at risk. You 
flatten buildings. You bomb them from the air, however. Going door-to-door -door -door means you're putting your soldiers at risk. Booby traps, uh, snipers, and the like. The more meticulous and cautious the Israelis are, the more they expose their own soldiers to danger. So you're right. If they are absolutely brutal and flatten the place, they will create a great deal of anger and resentment. If they go door to door and are very careful and go after targeted individuals, they're going to take serious casualties. So I expect there will be a, I hope, there will be a medium between the two uh, that preserves Israeli soldiers' lives while not being indiscriminate. Uh, definitely the Israeli um, anger and statements would suggest they're going to go in really hard. We'll see. We'll see what they do. We'll see what their goals are. They haven't really, they've said they want to destroy Hamas, but they haven't, they haven't told us how that's going to happen. Well, I, I imagine it would be a, a combination of flattening buildings from the sky and then going door to door with the remaining ones. I suspect you're right. They've called up 300,000 reservists. That's a lot of uh, I have an American analogy. Uh, Gaza is precisely the same size as Omaha, Nebraska. 136 uh, square miles. I, well, I don't know what that would be in kilometers. Not very big. Uh, 300,000 soldiers is a very large number. I don't know. don't know what they have in mind. So let's say they are successful. Um, do... If they find someone they can work with, is there not the risk that that person or that group of people become just viewed as a um, a puppet government, you know, a puppet of the state of Israel and not with any real authority? Let me give you a grand example, analogy. 1945, the Allies not only defeated Germany and Japan, but destroyed their infrastructure and fought their ideologies. Let's focus on Germany. The Allies found Konrad Adenauer, an anti-Nazi German, and they sponsored him and his government, and it worked. Uh, Germany is a decent country since 1945. Adenauer was not rejected as a puppet of the Allies. He was accepted as a legitimate leader, and it worked. So if it can happen in Germany with the Nazis, with the vast power of Germany, world-threatening power, it, you don't think it can happen in Gaza, which has no air force, no economy, population of about one and one-third one million? I think it can. Does the Palestinian Authority play a role in this at all? Are they still an option, or have they just been completely sidelined? in Gaza because of the last 16 years? Some people see it as a solution. For example, uh, Brett Stevens in the New York Times proposed a few days ago that uh, the Israelis go in and put the Palestinian Authority back in charge, as it was until 2007. I think that is a very bad idea, in part because the Palestinian Authority is weak, in part because it is just about as radical as Hamas. It just mixes a blend of violence and uh, legitimate activity. But I, I, 
trusted no more than I trust Hamas. If it had the power, it would engage in a similar kind of uh, offensives as Hamas has. No, I, th I, I see it as, as useless, as negative, and do not want to see it have any role in Gaza. And no, for that matter, in the West Bank, I think it is a very negative presence there. Not as bad as Hamas, granted, but, but very bad. All right. We need to take a, a quick break. When we come back, I do want to ask you about the ongoing potential for this to grow wider, uh, what all of this means for the Abraham Accords and um, what what we're seeing. I know in cities around the world, people coming out in support of this. That's absolutely mind boggling. More with Daniel Pipes when we come back. Last week, one of the uh, the big concerns was this war spreading. And between when we're recording now on Thursday afternoon and, and when this is published, things could change. But there was a false alarm at one point that an invasion had been launched from uh, southern Lebanon into northern Israel. Uh, Daniel, this obviously has to be a, a concern for Israel, for its supporters and allies. Um, do you see Iran in the background trying to egg on Hezbollah, for example? Do you see other countries in the region deciding that they're going to get involved? How does this this potential for an expansion of the war that Israel has with Hamas, um, what's the potential for that blowing up wider? The potential is very much there for Hezbollah in Lebanon to attack Israel. Hezbollah has a far larger arsenal, a more deadly arsenal. It can do great damage to Israel. Uh, Hezbollah is autonomous as far as we know. It is not under the thumb of the mullahs in Tehran. They can't simply say, go. Uh, the leader, Hassan Nasrallah, and others make their own decisions. I'm inclined to think they will not join in. Could well be wrong, but I think they're inclined not to. I think the ferocity of the Israeli response uh, it will be a disincentive to join in. For that matter, uh, where, as you said, we're on Thursday afternoon, there's been a call for Israeli Muslims to rise up against their co-nationals, the Jews of Israel. I'm inclined to think that won't happen. We'll know, we'll know by the time this is posted. I think, again, they're aware of the anger, and I don't think they want to provoke it. Uh, the... Um the Iranian foreign minister was headed to, um, I think it was, his plane was headed towards Damascus and the, uh, the Israeli air force. Um, I don't know exactly what they did. They, you know, fired some rockets, uh, towards that direction. And suddenly it was turning around and, and heading back to, uh, to Tehran. Iran obviously wants to get involved. They, I mean, they, they funded Hamas, how much they were involved directly in this is, is a point of debate, I understand, but they obviously want to be a part of this. They see this as a, a chance to weaken uh, the little Satan that, um, you know, that they view Israel as, whereas America, of course, being the big Satan. Um, do you think Iran does make that mistake of getting involved? Well, from all I know, the Iranians have funded Hamas, the usual number mentioned is 70 million U.S. dollars a year, uh, to, to which I reply, yes, but Qatar, funded with Israeli encouragement, 
permission and encouragement, funded Hamas to the tune of something like 360 million U.S. dollars. So what this points to is the fact that the Israeli security establishment was under the impression that if Hamas has money and people get salaries, things will be quiet and there will not be so much attack. Uh, that clearly was wrong. Finally, that's been dispelled. The Iranians... Are I, I was going to ask, why would Israel encourage Qatar to, to fund them? But that, that was the thinking? Was, you know, is, essentially, if people have jobs, they won't bother us. Right. That historically has been early the Zionist and then the Israeli approach. Look, Palestinians, we will bring you jobs, we will bring you clean water, electricity. You're better off with us. Calm down, don't fight us. Unfortunately for Israel, it has never worked in 140 years. But it is a continuous approach until a few days ago, maybe it will be abandoned now. But uh, getting back to Iran, uh, the Iranians are intent on fighting Israel, uh, preferably using proxies, Lebanese, Yemeni, Palestinian, and whoever else they can find. There's an article I saw that mentioned Af Afghans they want to recruit. Uh, they're leery of fighting Israel directly because uh, that could be a lot of pain, but they're quite ready to fight Israel to the last Palestinian. Uh, much the same way uh, uh, Iran is willing to fight Saudi Arabia in Yemen in a proxy. They they don't seem to want direct conflicts. They They want to to go, you know, do it in a roundabout way. What does all of this, um, we saw some of the, um, the responses from Israel's Arab neighbors, Saudi Arabia, even saying um, at one point that, you know, the, the attacks were due to the actions and negligence of Israel. Does this change the Abraham Accords, which appeared to be setting these one-time enemies on a better footing? Let me provide a bit of background before getting into the Accords. <clears throat> the Arab states, well, the Palestinians were the enemies of Israel until 1948 uh, on a local basis. And then in 1948, the Arab states got involved. Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, even Lebanon, but primarily Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. They lost. They lost again and again and again. And by 1973, they'd had it. They didn't want to make war. So for 25 years, from 48 to 73, it was the Arab states who were the main opponents of Israel. It was army against army, air force against air force, navy against navy. But then in 1973, the Arab states quit. It's just somehow not noticed. With two exceptions in 1982 and 1991, the Arab states have not in the past 50 years, 50 years to the day practically, given that the last war was in October 1973, the Arab states have withdrawn. They talk, they might engage in economic boycotts, but they don't engage in military battles. And as time has gone on, uh, more and more states have said, we've had enough. First it was Egypt with the peace treaty of 1979, then it was Jordan, peace treaty of 1994. Then in 2020, there were four states, UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan. Now there's the possibility of Saudi Arabia. So the trend is clear. Now, in, within this trend, there are various obstacles, uh, primarily 
the Palestinian case. But in general, the governments are fed up with the Palestinians. However, in the 50s and 60s, when the, when the conflict was live in the countries, the governments mobilized their populations and distracted their populations by talking about Israel, Israel, Israel. And the legacy of that period, long ago as it is, is still there. And populations are agitated about Israel in a way that governments are not. And so governments have to be a bit cautious. Uh, they they want to end this conflict with Israel, but they have populations that sometimes can get very agitated. And they certainly got agitated you know, with events like the massacre on October 7th. So, uh, yes, I think it'll, it's going to slow things down. It might even derail them to some extent. But the larger picture, I think, remains the same, that the Arab states want to end this conflict. And now there's the additional point that the Arab states, particularly the Gulf, Persian Gulf states, are afraid of Iran. And the United States is no longer there as it used to be, particularly with the Iran deal, sending money and whatnot to Iran. And so who are they to look to? Uh, Russia, China, uh, they look to the neighborhood strongman, uh, which is Israel. So they have an added incentive. And however much the populations are agitated by what's going on, I think the, the rulers of these countries, and none of them are Democrats, will continue to close down the conflict with Israel. I mean, at one point it looked as if some of the, the Arab states or the Persian Gulf states would actually lean on Hamas, lean on the Palestinian Authority to say, you know what, it, it's time to stop, guys. It's it's time to move on. Um, it, obviously, that was not successful. Do you think they play a role in getting the Palestinian people to say, you know what, you've you've had Hamas as your rulers for a long time. It, it, it's time to reject that. Uh, and I and I ask in this way because, you know, I, I know they can be. Uh, brutish thugs, but a, a population can get rid of brutish thugs. It's just that oftentimes people are either explicitly or implicitly allowing the thugs to operate. Um, do, do the other Arab states in, have a role in, in getting the Palestinian people to say enough already? Well, their focus has been on the West Bank and the Palestinian Authority that rules the West Bank. And uh, until... Uh, this massacre, the focus was on Saudi efforts to pay off, to provide money and perhaps some other benefits to the PA, the Palestinian Authority, and in return get it to sign off on the Saudis having perhaps formal diplomatic relations with Israel. That clearly has been sidelined for the moment, but they have not been making that effort with, with Hamas. They just didn't have that kind of clout. Uh, and uh, no, I don't think in to answer your basic question, can they get the Palestinians to give up the fight with Israel? No, I don't think they can. They don't have that kind of authority. The only ones who can do that are the Israelis. We, we've talked about the, the religious aspect of, of this, and, and obviously for some in Hamas, that is a driving force. Uh, what about the great Satan, little Satan idea? It, is some of this driven by a hatred of America and Israel is just a proxy? It's complicated. I did an article some decades ago looking at, at uh, conspiracy theories in the Middle East and showed how there's 
a persistent contradiction between the conspiracy say that the United States runs everything and Israel is its unsinkable uh, aircraft carrier. The Israelis have no autonomy. In fact, uh, just within days ago, uh, the head of the PA, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, said that Israel is nothing but a colony of the United States. And then there's the other uh, version, which is uh, the Jews run the United States. Congress is dominated, Jewish money, Jewish media, uh, presidency is an hawk to Israel, and everything the United States does is uh, run by from Jerusalem. <laughs> you would think uh, they'd settle on one or the other, but in fact both are current. And there is a underlying uh, consistency uh, despite the contradiction, which is that things are not as they seem to be. Things are deep and dark and terrible. And there are conspiracies taking place. Uh, they just can't figure out exactly which way the conspiracy goes. The the second conspiracy that uh, you mentioned about Israel controlling the United States that sounds like something I would experience on a a campus, a university campus, college campus, be it in your country or mine. And we've seen not just on campuses, but an awful lot of support expressed a giant rally in Dearborn, Michigan. We had a pretty big rally here in, in Toronto at Sydney Opera House in Australia. Around the world, people came out and said, you know, despite the images they saw, they said that they supported this. And it, what is bizarre is that it is often wrapped up in decolonization language and the language of, of, of the progressive faculty club uh, that uh, that this is somehow justified because uh, uh, we need to decolonize Israel. Uh, we need to decolonize Palestinian lands. Uh, is this just a, a trap, that, mental trap that people have worked themselves into over the years that they're unable to see that, you know, perhaps things have changed and, and the sands have shifted and, and, and you're on the wrong side here. Let me give a bit of history. Uh, through most of the 20th century, the left, whether it be moderate liberals or communists, was sympathetic to Zionism and is Israel. I'm Indeed, old enough it, to remember that. Well, probably not old enough to remember the fact that Stalin was critical to the emergence of Israel in 1947-48. He saw Israel as a vehicle the socialists of Israel, the leftists of Israel, indeed the communists of Israel, as a vehicle against the British Empire. Now, the, the Soviets dropped Israel by 1955, but even later, when things you remember, I remember, um, say 1967 war between Israel and three Arab states, uh, the left was on Israel's side. Uh, this changed as a, as a result of, of a whole host of factors. Perhaps most important is Soviet anti-Zionism. The Soviet Union became the ally of the Arabs and began to portray Israel as a colonial state, as a tool of the imperialists and the like. Also, the variety of developments in the 1990s, I won't go through them all, but perhaps the most important was the election of Nelson Mandela in 1994, which freed up the apartheid, label and 
the left looked around and said, what's the apartheid state? Jimmy Carter wrote a book called Israel, the Apartheid State. And increasingly, uh, the Durban Conference of 2001, increasingly the left became anti-Israel. And the further out you go on the left, the more anti-Israel. Uh, in general, the older uh, liberals, such as Joe Biden, uh, still have a warm feeling towards Israel. And the younger liberals uh, are more hostile. When you get to the university, you find you know, enormous hostility that verges on anti-Semitism. So Israel has a major problem with the left. Conversely, the right, which was back in the day, cooled Israel. Perhaps the American president who was most hostile, not perhaps, the American president who was most hostile to Israel was Dwight Eisenhower. Not because he was hostile to the state as such, but he saw it as an impediment to forming anti-Soviet alliances. Uh, Gerald Ford was probably the second most, both Republicans. Um, and so Republicans were cool. In the mid-1980s, the switch came. The Republicans became, well, the conservatives in general, not just in the United States, but around the world, whether it be Japan or Brazil or India, Canada, uh, became warmer towards Israel, and the liberals became cooler. And that's the trend we're on now for 30 years. I don't see an end in sight. So you don't see that that changing over the next little while? I don't. In terms of American presidents, uh, we've watched as president after president has made Israel and peace with the Palestinians a major, major uh, effort. You know, it, it, they've, they've tried to make it almost as a, um, an end cap on their career, be it uh, George H.W. Bush, Clinton, Obama, uh, even Donald Trump, to a degree, got involved in. We got the Abraham Accords. Biden has not really engaged in the same way. Do you have a sense why and and is an American presence required? I mean, it hasn't helped so far. Uh, so is it required to actually ever get to an ending piece? Glad you picked up on that because very, very few people have. Just one correction. Uh, Trump's Palestinian uh, effort went nowhere, but it was a big plan introduced with great hoopla. And then when that failed, he turned to the Abraham Accords with the states. You're right. Biden is the first president, I think, since Gerald Ford in the mid-1970s, let's say almost 50 years ago, who's not had his Palestinian peace plan. It's remarkable. And I keep wondering how this can be. Um, for example, George W. Bush was criticized for not having planned. I think he came up, I forget the number, with 14 of them in the course of his eight years. I don't know, like every few months. And yet he was criticized for not trying hard enough. And here, Biden has simply said, you know, uh, or he hasn't said anything, he's just taken a, a pass on it. And no one criticizes him and no one expects him to. And it absolutely befuddles me. I don't know how this came to be. I guess it, the only explanation I can offer is that they wised up and thought, well, this isn't getting anywhere. Nobody gets uh, Nobel Prizes for this anymore. Uh, let's just try other things. And furthermore, you know, China, Russia, they're you know, peer problems now that have to be dealt with. So let's focus on those. But I am very, very surprised. But but is America's participation, is, is that required to get to a, a peace, do you think? Or is it ultimately going to come down to the people on the ground? Let me rephrase your question. Are American bad ideas necessary to get to a, an agreement? No, they're not. 
uh, United States government has come up with one bad idea after another. No, it's not necessary. In fact, it's an impediment. All right, Daniel, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for the invitation again. This has been the Full Comment Podcast, a post-media production. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or Amazon Music. And you can help us out by giving us a rating, leaving a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.